0: Well, good morning, Gateway. It's good to have you here. And uh, we are uh, in our third week of a series called Breaking Free. We're looking at some of the, some of the traps, some of the common pitfalls that uh, we fall into as Christians that keep us from living the kind of life that God has for us. Today we're going to be talking about worship, and, um, you know, I love talking about worship because I just, I feel like when I talk about it, uh, I I definitely can't talk as someone who has arrived, as someone who's got it figured out, because that's not me. In fact, I've been trying to figure this thing out since I got saved at the age of 15. When I got saved, uh, I got involved in a church uh, nearby where I lived. It was a small church, and uh, very, very... um, You know, I don't know, the experience that I had there, it was a great church, loved it. But we sang these songs, maybe you've heard of them, they called them hymns, uh, in that church. We sang songs called hymns, and we sang them uh, in, out of books called, anyone? Hymnals. hymnals, yo! Anyone remember those? So we used hymnals, and now, I don't know, I think we used hymnals to prop up the projector, I'm not sure. But now, <clears throat> you know, things have changed, and we used to sing these songs like, man, These awesome songs, like, that I love, like, I'll Fly Away, anyone like that? Just love, yes, man, that's an amazing grace, trust and obey, Uh, to God be the glory, Uh, do you remember, like, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, anyone, like, and I mean, you know, like, be thou my vision, in my opinion, the greatest... Just me, the greatest worship song ever written. But we would be singing sometimes in church, and on the inside, you know, I would just, I was 15, I'd be grooving, you know. I'd just be like singing along with the song, but not on the outside. Okay, it didn't matter how, how much the song was swinging on the inside. You never did that on the outside, because in my church, we had rules about worship. You stood up straight, you didn't move any part of your body, except for right here, you know? You, you didn't get worked up, you didn't get excited, and that's, the, I mean, when I, I started going to church at 15, and if you were to ask me what is worship, I would say, boom, you know, like, here it is. It looks exactly like this. And then, uh, second half of my high school uh, time as a junior and senior, I was really involved in music, and I got involved in a couple of groups um, those years. I, I was involved in um, a, a, a trio of guitar players. There's three of us. We'd write our own music and do kind of folk kind of stuff. I was in a, I don't want to hate to say this, but I was, I was in a bluegrass band for a while. Uh, that was really weird, man. We did some weird stuff, you know, uh, just the crowd you played for. Um, and then I was in a, and I'd say I was in a contemporary Christian band. We called it rock back then, but you know, um, You probably wouldn't call it rock today, and we had a lot of fun. We got some songs on the radio, uh, but that was back when there was only like five or six Christian contemporary songs as it was, so we had a local radio station that played contemporary Christian, so they were just anything they could get their hands on, and So we started playing at a lot of different churches and venues, and so I'd only gone to a Baptist church up to this point. So we started playing some other churches and concerts, and I started seeing stuff that I had never seen before, that I had never heard about, that I'd only imagined. Like, I remember being in a concert the first time we had a clapper, you know? And I was like, you know, who's going to deal with the clapper? Because in the middle (laughs) of this concert, this guy starts clapping along, and I'm just, hey! Hey! Clap on, (laughs) right? And I'm like, thank you, Steve. And I'm like, it was just, it was really awkward because seriously, I remember like looking at the bass player and going, who's going to deal with the clapper? Because the guy's clapping and I don't know. You can't, you know, you can't do that. And we'd have, we'd have shouters, you know? It'd be like, I'd be in the middle of it, between songs, I'd say, you know, say something, do a little devotional, and some guy might yell like, amen, you know, and I'd just kind of, freaked me out. I kind of jumped back. I'm like, why is am No, I'm talking. <laughs> you're, you're not talking. What are you doing? And, and, uh, and, then, and then there were the hand raisers. And I, that was, I remember the first time I'm up and I'm singing and some guy, he's raising his hand. And I, I, it was a new experience. I thought, well, I guess we stop the song and say, what's your question? Because I, <clears throat> I was unsure about that. And then there were the two-hand varieties, and then there were the swaying varieties, you know. And really, that stuff freaked me out. People would be, in the middle of a concert, people would be crying. I'd be like, you know, what, are we off-key? Or what, you know, what are we doing? Kneeling, tambourines, that was one of my favorite, tambourines. Dancing, which I'm just going to tell you right now, okay? I told you, I'm on a journey as a worshiper. But dancing makes me very uncomfortable. Any kind of dancing, any way, shape, or form, anywhere, anytime, I'm just uncomfortable with dancing. And people would be like getting out in the aisle and dancing. And again, it would be like, now we got the clapper, now we got the shout, we got the dancers. And then, one time, this was the, the, the time that really freaked me out. So we're at this church, and we're playing, and in the middle of the song, this guy gets out in the aisle, and he starts walking up the middle of the aisle, and I'm standing in the middle, I'm like, you know, does he have a gun, or what's going on, you know? And he starts taking off his shoes, and I'm thinking, Whoa, well, what's he doing? And he unbuttons his shirt, and I've got a t-shirt on underneath, but he throws his shirt off, and... I'm thinking, what, what in the world is going on? And then this girl gets out in the aisle and she starts doing the same thing. And I, you know, you guy's coming right towards me. I kinda, I'm ready to run, you know. And he uh, walks right past me and they had a, I didn't know it, they had a baptismal like we had in the old building. And the guy just goes up and jumps in the baptismal, you know, because it was, it was time to get baptized. just absolutely freaked me out. But in that whole process, you know, I would, I, it made me start to ask some questions that I had never asked before. It made me start to ask some questions that I had never heard addressed before from the pulpit. Like, what is worship? And, and what is right worship? And, and what worship is acceptable to God? And what about the songs? Do the songs have to be printed and bound in order for them to be acceptable to God. I remember being in this church and one time they wanted to do a song that wasn't in the hymnal and they had to have a committee meeting about whether or not that was okay. And they finally decided it was okay. And they printed it up. It was a Gaither song and they printed it up on a, on a, on the bulletin. And they, but it was really controversial at the time. Uh, you know, what about what style? What style is acceptable to God, and what instruments, and what about hands, and what about dancing, and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a lot of questions. I'll be honest with you, I still do. I'm on a journey. I still have some questions. At one time, Jesus got in a discussion with a a Samaritan woman. And uh, next week, we're going to dive into this text in detail. But what I want to tell you is that as we look at this text for just a moment in John chapter 4... Um, Jesus wants to talk to her about her spiritual condition, but she kind of throws a sideways question. She's trying to to deflect him. But she asks a great question, because it's a question that I think we've all wanted to ask at times. She put it a little differently than we might, but she asks a question about worship. Now, she says to Jesus, because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, and they have completely different backgrounds when it comes to worship. And she said, Now, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the, the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And she says, so I have a question about worship. I've been wondering about this. Now, now my people, my religion say you worship on this mountain, and you guys say you worship in Jerusalem. So I'm just wondering, where do you worship? And that's a great question. And, and it sounds a lot like questions we ask sometimes about a lot of external, superficial stuff. But Jesus gives a very, uh, 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 an answer that kind of cuts right to the core of the issue. Something I I imagine she didn't anticipate. He said that the time is coming and already is here when, notice when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for anyone who will worship him in that way. Now, it's an interesting answer because on the surface it doesn't seem to answer her question and yet he kind of goes right underneath that. He goes to the depth of, of the issue. The word worship that Jesus uses here, uh, uh, proskuneo in the Greek, l- means to do reverence towards something, um, uh, a, a word that we might use to describe it today is to express the worth of something or someone above all else. So worship is the thing that I give my, uh, primary, my primary thoughts to, it's the primary thing I give my heart to, my, my time to, my affection to, my priority to, proskuneo, to to do reverence to God. And when Jesus gives her an answer, He kind of gives her three uh, irreducible ingredients of worship. And the first is the focus of worship, which He says is the Father. The only true focus of worship is the Father. I would expand that and just say that it includes the Trinity of God. Everyone worships something. It's been said that God dropped the need to worship into our DNA. And everyone worships something. Everyone lifts something above everything else. So, so for some people, they worship themselves. You know, because they're the most important thing to them. It's the thing they give most of their time and their thought and their affection to. For some people, the thing they worship, the thing they put above everything else is their body. And that's what they put all their time and their energy into. For some people, it's their money. You know, that's the thing that's most important to them. For some people, it's their job. They're always connected. They're always thinking about their career. They've got their Blackberry on. You know, they always want to stay connected to work. For some people, it's their possessions or pleasure or a hobby or a person or kids or whatever it is. But Jesus says, in order for worship to be true, it must be focused on the Father. And the second is, he says, it must be in spirit. Now... While the Holy Spirit is a very important ingredient in worship, it's not what He's talking about in this particular passage. He's talking about the spirit of a person. And what He means is this, worship isn't this, worship isn't flapping your jaw, okay? Worship comes from inside of you. That's what true worship is. It's genuine, it's intimate, it's an expression of love. When you sing the words that are on the screen, they're, they're not just coming from here, they're coming from here, they're coming from your heart. So Jesus says it's toward the Father. It's genuine. And the third thing he says is that it must be based in truth. Now, in general, when Jesus talks about truth, he's talking about basing our faith, our life, our actions on the word of God. But in this passage, I think Jesus is being a little more specific. And I think what he's pointing to is this, that worship and the way we worship should be based on the word of God. That's what true worship is. In other words, worship isn't determined by what society says, or what a particular religion says, or what a particular church says, or what's politically correct, or even how I feel about worship. Acceptable worship is determined by God the Father. And I want to talk this morning about something that has helped me tremendously over the years in terms of kind of getting over certain hurdles when it comes to worship. And and the big idea I want to talk about is this, that when we think about worship, I find it helpful to remember that worship involves a cast of many, but an audience of only one. It involves a cast of many. So for instance, in a worship service, you could be excused if you were a little confused about this, because when we worship as a congregation, sometimes what it feels like is that there's a, a band on the stage, or the pastor on the stage, and that, per, you know, the people on the stage are the cast, they're the performers in worship, and you guys are the audience, but that would be absolutely incorrect. Because when it comes to worship, what we remember is that we're all on the stage together. That, that's the intention. So when we were singing a few minutes ago, if we were worshiping, really, in our mind, we were all up here. We were all singing to God together. We were all connecting with those words that were coming into our hearts and they were flowing out of us. And we were singing and there was only one person sitting out here this morning. And that's God the Father. So he was sitting there and he was just soaking in your worship and your praise and your adoration. A cast of many, but an audience of one. Now, there's a trap that we can fall into. And the trap is that sometimes we can worship for an audience of of more than one. Like when we become more concerned, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever been worshiping, and you become more concerned about what the people around you were thinking of your worship than God. You know, maybe you're, you were you're sitting here this morning going, I'd really love to sing out in the song, but if I sing out, you know, I might freak out the people near me. And I'm kind of concerned about that. What are you doing? You're worshiping for an audience of more than one at that point. Or maybe if you're sitting there going, you know, I'd like to raise my hand, and, but I, you know, I'll, wow. You know, like, the world will come to an end if I do that, because I've never done that. Uh, You know, and you're really concerned about what people would think. If uh, you decide, we're singing this morning, and I just just need to be quiet for a moment, and just bow my head for a moment, just be silent while everyone else is singing. You know, but maybe you have the thought, people are going to wonder what's wrong with me. You know, people are going to be like, what's wrong with that person? Don't they love God? Aren't they? See, that's when we become more concerned about people than we do, about God, or sometimes, here's what we do, we put ourselves in the audience. Now how can you know when you put yourself in the audience, well you start thinking things like this. It's, it, you come to church with s- some, some scorecards, you know, and the song's going on, you're like, i give it an eight, you know, uh, I'll give it a three. I didn't really like that song, I didn't like the choice, you know, uh, that's a sign that you were sitting in the audience. Uh, when you start rating the, the, the leader, the band, I didn't like that part, I don't like that outline, I, I didn't think that was the best prayer. So that's always a, a, a telltale sign that there's more than one per- person in the audience. So how do we avoid that trap? Well, I want to suggest a few things that over the years have really helped me personally as a worshiper. And again, I want to say this. I don't have all this figured out. I'm on a journey like you do, but here's some things that have really helped me. And the first is this. It helps me to remember when I worship, I should be worshiping with awe when it comes to my God. This last week, some of you know, um, I traveled to L.A., um to be with my family. My, my grandmother passed away unexpectedly last week, and uh, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the token Christian, and it just so happens that I'm a pastor, so they get all religious you know, ceremonies for free. Um, and uh, so I, I flew down there to do the funeral, and um, so here's, here's the funeral, it's just, it's just family, and I guess um, I was thinking there's about 30 people there, and it was just a graveside memorial, and that uh, was for my grandmother. And my grandmother made it very clear during her lifetime that she did not believe in God. And she wanted that to be extremely, perfectly clear. Um, As I sat there doing the the, the service, um, I'm sitting there with about 30 people. None of them, as far as I can tell, have any kind of relationship uh, with their God. And, you know, it was just, uh, people would come up and say things like, you know, well, Grandma's with the Lord now. Well, Grandma's not in pain anymore. Well, Grandma's happier now. And, and, and then they, they would sit down. And the thing that broke my heart was I, I know and they know that none of them believe it and none of them mean it. It's just what you say at a funeral. That's what you say. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ritual. I remember getting on the airplane uh, an evening flight and, and, and flying back, and I, I had a lot of thoughts, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share some of those with you next week, um, but the one thought that I had as I was coming back was um, that was the most depressing, discouraging thing I have I've ever been a part of. It just it just broke my heart, and I remember thinking oh, I can't wait to go to Gateway this weekend because I just want to worship God with people who know God. You know, it made me think about how what we do here is so dramatically 180 degrees different than what I did on Tuesday. We are a group of people who are connected to hope. We have the living Savior in our life. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We've been saved. We have communion with God. We, we, We have hope. But it made me think, you know, I I wonder sometimes if our worship feels more like what I was doing on Tuesday as opposed to being a group of people who understand that the God that we're worshiping is unbelievably awesome and amazing. One of Jesus' disciples was named John. He outlived the other 11 disciples. You may know this, but... John reached a point in his life where he was the only disciple still alive. And and the the Roman government decided that John was uh, a little too much of a thorn in their side, and so they decided to uh, put him to death. Uh, Church history tells us that uh, they did it by uh, putting him in a basket and lowering him into a cauldron of boiling oil. But church history says that when he came out, he was not burned at all of course, freaked out the executioner, and uh, you weren't allowed in in those times to execute someone twice, (laughs) and they didn't know what to do with him, so they decided to banish him to an island called Patmos, and they thought, well, if we can't kill him, we can just isolate him, we can just neutralize him. So they put him on this island, and so here's John on this island, he's an old man now, he's lived a long life, he's probably ready to go home and see his Lord, but here he is, he's separated from other believers, and God's got something else up his sleeve, and God begins to appear to him, and give him some visions, and ultimately he writes a book that we call the book of Revelation. Uh, just like this, just an amazing thing that God does. But near the beginning of the book, John is having this vision and he hears this voice and he turns around. And when he turns around, he describes a scene that he saw. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, Now in his hand, he held seven stars. And last time I checked, stars are really big, you know. So this is kind of a grand scene. He's holding seven stars. And then out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And John says, And when I saw him, I, I what? I fell, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John says, I fell at his feet. Now think about this for a minute. John spent three years living with Jesus Christ. John saw his his miracles. John heard his teaching. John had one-on-one time with Jesus. John saw Jesus heal people, raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus' crucifixion. He saw Jesus after he was resurrected. He had meals with him. Spent time with the post resurrected Savior. So he's got a, a certain level of familiarity with Jesus Christ. When he sees him, he doesn't do what you might expect, like, you know, hey, dude, what's going on? You know, long time no see. No, it says he falls at his feet in awe of his Savior. You see, worship essentially is not a ritual. A ritual, that's what you do at a funeral when you have no relationship with the Lord. That's not what we do. Worship is a response. That's what John did. John wasn't performing some kind of ritual. John was responding to two things. I would say essentially he was responding to who God is and what God has done. Worship is a response to who God is. God is the eternal one. To me, that alone is something to chew on for the rest of my life and try to get my mind around. I don't know if you've ever, like, maybe sat down late at night and looked up at the stars and ever had thoughts like I have. Like, it's crazy to imagine that the universe goes on and on and on and on and what do you do after a million and a billion years and traveling and it just goes on and on. But scientists will tell us that they believe that the universe has an end. Imagine that, but then here's what I always wonder, what's beyond that, <laughs> you know? I mean, how can, well, think about it this way, God is the uncaused cause, the only eternal thing that we, we know of. He goes back and back and back and back, in fact, it's, it's really not even correct to try to think about how far back God goes, because He doesn't go back, if you will, there's no end to it. Everything else in the world has a beginning, but God. The universe has a beginning, but God does not. The angels have a beginning, but God does not. We have a beginning, but God does not. Every created thing has a beginning, but God does not. He's the eternal one. He's holy. That word holy basically means he's entirely other. There's nothing else like him. He's perfection. He's love. It doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say God is loving. It says He is love. It's not something He does, it's something He is. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. That is, He knows everything. And then there's the things God has done. He's created. He's created everything. He's created us. He's your creator. He thought of you. He gave you life. He's your sustainer. He's your provider. He's your savior. What do we do in response to that? In Psalm 95, it says this, Come let us worship. Come let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Here's another word we find in the Bible for the word worship. Uh, shakah is the Hebrew word. It means to bow down, uh, to fall flat, uh, to do a face plant in the dirt. You know that, that's, that's the idea that he has going on here. In, in Hebrews, it tells us this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God. I love this. Let us worship God, what does it say? Acceptably, you know, with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He starts by saying, therefore, based on what we know about God, how do we respond to a God that's all of that? How do we respond? How do we worship a God who's done all that for us? He says, we do it with reverence and awe. And both of those words have heavy overtones of a respectful fear toward God. Now one of the obvious questions is how do I develop awe for God? If I'm not feeling awe for God, can I just manufacture that? Can I just I would just say this, in my life, I've found that the, the surefire way to develop awe for God is just to start looking for Him. That's been the thing that's helped me. For years, I used to practice what I called God sightings. And I'd get up every morning, and I'd get in the practice of looking for God today. And at the end of the day, I'd break out a journal, and I'd write. And here's what I found. When you're looking for God, it's amazing where you'll find God. But when you're not, it's amazing what you can just pass right by. This summer, I was with my, my, uh, my wife's family. Every summer, we spent a week at the beach together in this house. There's tons of us there. And, and every evening, I'll go for a run along the beach. And uh, I just, you know... <clears throat> It's, I'm not uh, impressive as a runner, just take my word for it, I just, I try, it's just something I do, and so I, I'm, I'm out on the beach, and I love running on the beach, and it's, so it's in the evening, and I'm running along, and the sun is going down, and the sun, it's reaching that place where it's, you know, out in the ocean, and, and it's half down and half up you know that point and it's got the orange glow and there's just i don't know as i'm running there's just this beauty and just something about the whole thing and i just i don't know something to me clicked and i stopped running uh and i remember just staring at that sunset and being overwhelmed by because when i saw it i just thought wow isn't God just amazing? Something in that sunset was just screaming God. Now, I could have kept running, but I stopped and I was looking at that. And I just had this feeling like I should, this is a holy moment. I should be worshiping God. What I really should do is drop on my knees right here and now. But I just kind of looking around and I don't see anybody who knows me. So I drop on my knees and I worship God. And you know what I thought about? I thought, how many times have I just kind of ran right past a sunset? God was there. God was working. How many times have I got up in the morning and just run right past that? God was there. God was working. It it wasn't God. It was me. I didn't stop to see him. How many meals have I sat down to eat, and God was there with me. God was wanting to be with me like we talked about last week, and I just ate and ran by. How many times has God answered a prayer? How many many loving relationships has God given to us? How many blessings has He given us? And God is there in those moments, those holy moments. That, for me, is how I develop a, a reverence and an awe for God, is just to engage in the moment with God. You see, my worship of God should not be determined by the cast. Your your worship of God should not be determined by the culture or by your comfort level or by your likes and dislikes or by who might be looking at that particular moment. Our worship should be a response to an audience of only one. Only one of His love and His greatness and His care. Worship with awe. For me, that has been so helpful over the years. And here's the second is, to worship with abandon. Now, i was going to tell you this, that the first point and the last point, they're the easier points for me. This is the harder point for me. And I'm just going to be up front with you there. Now, early in King David's reign, over Israel, second king of Israel. Um, He wanted to relocate the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that may be familiar with you, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that whole kind of thing, right? There's this Ark that God had Israel construct. It wasn't very large. It was a box, it was covered in gold. It represented the presence of God. And uh, inside of that Ark, in that box, there was a jar of manna to remind them of going through the wilderness. There was Aaron's staff that budded, and there was a copy of the law of Moses now when david becomes king for a hundred years the ark has been separated from israel's central place of worship now there's a whole lot of different reasons during that hundred years why that happens but at this point there's nothing to keep the ark from being in jerusalem where israel worships and it should be there but it's not because israel's got some superstitious stuff going on so finally david says you know what I really want to revive worship in God's kingdom. So we're going to get that ark. So he takes 30,000 soldiers, not because he has to fight for it, because it's actually pretty much in their possession, but he's going to make a statement. So they march out, they, they get the ark, and they're bringing it back. To Jerusalem in this processional. And this is a defining moment for the nation because they're going to bring the ark, which represents God's presence, they're going to bring it to the tabernacle, and that's where they're going to have a centralized worship. And the, his goal is to bring the nation together as worshipers. So it's, it's really a big deal. Now, as they're getting close to Jerusalem on this eventful day, David apparently is walking along with all of these people, but he's kind of getting worked up. Now, I'm not sure why. Maybe he's thinking about what it's going to be like to worship in the presence of God. I don't know, but as they're walking along, David's kind of in his heart getting very, very excited and, and becoming very worshipful and captured in the moment. And he decides that it's inappropriate for him to wear his kingly, because he's got the robes and the crown and the train and all that. He's Something inside of him says, man, you know what? This is wrong in front of God, right? So I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but I, maybe he ducks in a tent. And he strips down and he puts on a very common linen uh, outer, almost really an undergarment that the lowliest of priests wore and he goes back into the processional now that had to get the attention of some people because people would only ever see their king in one of two kinds of garb either the royal garb or the warrior uh you know kingly garb that he wore when he would go out to war this is like he's dressing like the most common person that there is and he and probably you know some people are like wow what's going on and then we're told David, as they get near Jerusalem, he's starting to dance around, you know, which again, I told you, I'm uncomfortable with that, and he's dancing around, and he's, he's, he's starting to clap, you know, and he, he's got his hands in the air, and he's worshiping, and, and as this, this processional comes into town, we're told his wife was in the residence in the kingly house and, uh, where they lived, and she's looking out, and she could see David in the processional, and she's like, oh no, what? what is he doing? What what is he wearing? Where did he get that thing? And all she can think about is what he's wearing and what he looks like and what she's like, look at him. That's just that. So she rushes down to the street. She goes up to David. She's like, man, David, pull yourself together. You're the king for Pete's sake, man. Look Look at the way you're dressed. Look at the way you're acting. You're acting childish. You're acting very undignified, David. You're not acting like a king. And and David says this. This is his response to his wife. He says to her, listen, it was before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. He's like saying, you know, honey, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. This is what he says. I will celebrate before who? The Lord, in other words, what's he saying? Listen, honey, I only worship an audience of one, just one. And this isn't about the people and it's not about what they think and it's not about the soldiers and it's not about the politicians and it's not about the priests and it's not about the rich people and it's not about the poor people and it's not about what people think of me. It's, I only care about one thing right now. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about you know, my kingship. I just care about the audience of one that I'm here to worship right here and right now. In Psalm 35, David writes this. He says, I will thank you. He's writing to God. I will thank you in front of the entire congregation. That's what David did. I will thank you in front of the entire congregation, and I will praise you before all the people. Now, the word praise in the Hebrew is the word hallel, and and we get the English word hallelujah from it. So this is all kind of coming together for me a little while back because I'm studying the word hallelujah, and I remember thinking when I was in church, when I first went to church, people might say, praise God. But no one ever said, hallelujah, because that was kind of like a radical word in the church that I, that, that I was attending. You know, nobody would go like, hallelujah, because that was like, they only did that on TV. So it was kind of weird. And now I understand why, because it really is a radical kind of word. The word literally means to act insanely, to be clamorously foolish or mad before God. And that's what David was doing. And it reminds us sometimes that we can be so composed when we're declaring God's Word, there's such an irony, such a juxtaposition to that, to here we are, you know, we're like, got to keep it cool, you know. I can't, I'm not going to get all Jesus freaky. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to sing the song and I'm not going to get out of line because it's not what we do in our church. There's something totally disconnected between, oftentimes between the God we worship (laughs) and the way we worship Him. And sometimes people say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I don't, I'm not that kind of a person, but watch them in front of a TV when their team's playing, you know? And they can get a little crazy, get a little screaming, little high fives, they got the shirt, they got the bumper sticker, you know? I don't know, maybe you're a reserved person, but have you ever fallen in love with somebody and done really stupid, crazy things? Of course you have, yes, yeah. And we can tell stories about that, right? Uh, you know, maybe it's, a, maybe a, your child's an honor student and you got the bumper sticker on the back. Maybe you're crazy about your Mac or PC or whatever stupid thing it is that you use, you know. But it's just a computer, it's just a, this is God. Worship with abandon. Now, there's, uh, we've gone through this before, but when I look in the Bible, I see some, some different biblical expressions of worship. This isn't my list Uh, I find this in the Psalms, and I've I've noted the scripture in uh, your notes just in case some of these look suspicious to you. Here are some of the things that the Bible says, things like clap your your hands, you know. Uh, Who invited the clapper? Oh, maybe God did. I'm not sure. Uh, Sing joyfully. It doesn't say sing skillfully. It says play instruments skillfully, but it just says sing joyfully. Uh, So that's good news for some of us. Uh, It says when we worship, we should shout aloud. Uh, Just... Uh, the next one I, um, I had to put in there because it's in the Bible. But dance, you know, dancing before the Lord. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I don't like it. Uh, singing new songs, singing you songs. So it, it, by the way, that's not a slam on old songs. Absolutely not. Because at one point, old songs were new songs, and that's. It's not a slam. It's just saying we shouldn't be afraid as people experience God and write songs about those experiences to go, well, it's not at least 100 years old, or, you know, we only sing songs written by dead guys or something like that. We don't do that. Old songs, new songs. How do we know if it's a good song? If it glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, if it reflects the truth of God's word, it's a good song. Uh, Bow Down um worship God with many kinds of instruments various instruments um loudly because the, in the Bible it says that to to play them loud now loud is a relative term uh it doesn't say painfully all right so I'll give you that it says loudly um lift your hands uh, it doesn't say lift your hand it says lift your hand uh give God thanks publicly uh, meditate on God. So there's an appropriate time to even be quiet, to be silent. You, you'd say, is it okay if I'm in worship service and people are singing and got the hands raised and I'm just quiet? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That is appropriate. If at the moment, that's just what's really connecting between you and God. I want you to understand something here. Okay. I, I said this before. I'm on a journey like you are, and I'm not comfortable with a lot of these. Um, but, but see, it's not about me right now. All right. And it's not even about you right now. It's about God. It's about God's Word. It's about what God says. And so I would just say this to you. If you were like me, I could just, you know, tell you, I, my goal is into, I don't, I don't want to make you do any of these things. I just want you to follow God. I want you to be true to God's Word as the Holy Spirit leads you in, in interacting with His Word. Because I do believe that as you read the, what? <laughs> we need an usher in row three. <laughs> because... As you read God's word and God's Holy Spirit interacts with that word, I believe God will speak to you and show you. And and again, let me just say this. If you're in a crowd and you're like, you know, I don't want, I don't feel God leading me to raise my hands, that's okay. I would love for us to be a congregation where we are free to interact with God's word and His Spirit is God leads us. I was trying to imagine, when I was working on this sermon, I was trying to imagine what it would be like if we were a church that just really reflected this, if we just, each of us as individuals were following God. And I'll be honest with you, as I tried to imagine it, it kind of concerned me what it might look like if it happened, but it also concerned me that it might never happen. So yeah, I'm torn and I'm imperfect as a worshiper. I'm just telling you that but I want God's will. I want, I want to honor God, my king, my, my savior. See, our worship should be driven by the one we worship. Try to imagine that in your life. Free to worship God. Try to imagine that in your home. Try to imagine that in your marriage and your family. So we worship God with awe. And we worship God with abandon. And the third thing is this. We worship God with our, with our life. In Romans 12, 1, it tells us this. Paul says, therefore, and that's a key word, therefore I urge you, brothers, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, he starts chapter 12, and the first word he has there is the word therefore. So, you know, when I want say this whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what's therefore? Therefore, why is it there? And what's going on? So he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. So for 11 chapters in Romans, Paul's been talking about how God thought of us, how God created us, how God made us, how God has purposes for us. Uh, But we walked away from God, but we did our own thing. We sinned. We walked away from God. And then what did God do? God had mercy. God reached out. God sent his son. His son went to the cross. God offers us grace. He sanctifies us. He has eternal life for us. He's just going through all this stuff. He goes, now, just stop for a minute. And as you think about all that stuff and ask yourself this question how do we respond to all of that how do we do it he says here's what you do you offer your bodies as an act of worship it just means you give god your whole life we talked about that last week you just give him everything unfortunately what we often do is we come on the weekend and give him a song or we give him a few dollars and we say god is that good enough if we're feeling really generous, maybe we give God a few bonus claps. We're the clapper, you know. He'll be excited about that. Uh, or maybe we sing loudly. Or maybe we, you know, try to take some notes in the sermon and not doze off. And all the thing is, all that can be worship. But my question is, is it enough? Is it enough to come on the weekend and do that and walk away and go, well, God should be happy with that now. You know, I clapped. I don't do that, so that should be good. The word worship in this passage here, uh, this is a, another word we're looking at here, uh, letaria. It's a Greek word which means divine service or worship. And I really love the way that, uh, this is the NIV, but I love the way the New American Standard translates it. If you memorized it in that, like I did, he says, let us offer to God our, our service of worship which I really love. He says, how do we respond to what God's done? We serve him with worship, a service of worship. In other words, the reason I like it is, he says, you don't give God a worship service, you give him a service of worship. You give him your life. You, you give him everything that you are. You offer your bodies. You offer your time. You offer your affection. When you think about it, that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. He offered his life as an act of worship to the Father. Matthew 20 says, It's just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, notice this, but to what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to live a life of worship. It's the ultimate form of worship to respond to God with your life, with your body, with your time, with your abilities, with everything that you are. So how do we live a life of worship? You know, we're ending the, the sermon this week the same place we ended the sermon last week. Remember, we are saying, how do you give God your whole life last week? What do we say? The way that you give God the rest of your life, which seems like just crazy, since most of us don't even know what that means. How do you give God the rest of your life? You just give him the next moment and then the next moment. That's how you give God your life. How do you give God a life of worship? Come on, there's no way we can imagine what that means to give Him our whole... Again, we don't even know what that involves. But if we make the commitment to give Him the next moment in worship, well now we're on our way to living a life of worship. So what would that look like for you? As we close, I want to ask you this question. What would that look like for you? We're going to sing a couple of songs in a minute to respond to God in worship. What would that look like for you? To give God a song as an act of worship, not as a ritual, not because, you know, that's what we do. That's what we do. We come and we sing. And we, no, what would it look like if you gave it to him as an act of worship? What would it look like if you gave God your next conversation? Church is over, you're walking out, somebody goes, hey, how's it going? And you, What would it look like for that conversation to be an act of worship? What would it look like when you go home today and you have a meal with someone? What would it look like if that was an act of worship. What would it look like if next time you open up your wallet that was an act of worship? What would it look like if, if when you're driving down the road today, you say, you oh, know, my driving could be an act of worship. Would you drive differently? Ah, you probably would, wouldn't you? I would. How about your involvement in some kind of ministry? Have you thought about that lately? When you minister to others, why are you doing that? What would it look like if it was just an act of worship to God? Or the next time you pray, or when you read your Bible, what would that look like to live a life of worship? Folks, we worship an audience of one, an amazing, incredible, wonderful savior. Let's pray together. So Father, we, uh, you know, we love you. And what can we say when we think about everything that you've done for us but you know thank you and father you know that uh, i personally have had a, just so much fun this week thinking about this message and and i and, and to to know that i have a god who doesn't expect perfection out of me i i don't have this down But Father, you're growing me, you're you're changing me, you're growing us, you're changing us. God, I I pray this morning, if we have fallen in any way in our life into the trap of of worshiping an audience more than one, that that today would be a day when we could repent of that, when we could be released of that, when we could get back to singing, to worshiping, to living, to pleasing an audience of only one, our Lord, our God, our God our Savior, our Creator, our Sustainer, amazing God. Thank you for being with us in this place. Father, may our worship again be for you a pleasing act. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.